0: Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, on this Halloween Monday, we look into why the myth of tampering with Halloween candy, the evils that could lurk in that bag of trick-or-treat loot, are so enduring, considering there's no evidence it actually happens anywhere. As a man born in B.C. is charged in the attack that severely injured the 82-year-old husband of U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi at the couple's San Francisco home late last week, we now know she was the likely target. We're also going to look at how demonizing and dehumanizing language, including against Pelosi, is fueling violence against politicians and others. Staffing shortages in the Canadian military are reaching crisis levels, according to a new brief for senior military leadership. Trouble with recruitment and retention means it could be more than a decade before staffing returns to acceptable levels. So what is the impact and what needs to be done to fix it? But first, we head to Ottawa on the latest public inquiry into the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act, where former Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly was under fire today. We find out why. First up tonight, let's head to Ottawa. The former police chief there, Peter Slowly, was back in front of the Emergencies Act inquiry for a second day today. uh, And that he described the situation in the city during the convoy protest as a tinderbox ready to explode. Those are the words he used. He got into a heated exchange with a lawyer for the Ottawa police who suggested slowly was concerned about losing his job while streets were gridlocked by protesters. The inquiry, of course, is looking into the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act in response to those uh, that blockade the so-called Freedom Convoy that caused those huge gridlocks in downtown Ottawa and at multiple border crossings in January and February. A lawyer representing Slowly's former employer, Ottawa Police, was pressing the former chief about why he resigned right after the Emergencies Act was invoked and whether he was trying to blame his deputy chiefs for the handling of the ongoing occupation of downtown Ottawa. I suggest that on February 9th, so a couple days later now, Um, you were pretty concerned
1: that you would lose your job and be blamed for what had happened. Absolutely not, sir. Okay. And what you were looking for was to blame somebody else.
0: Absolutely not, sir.
1: Um, You at some point decided that you could blame Deputy Chief
0: Bell at the time for not planning for this event. That is absolutely incorrect, sir. And I really take offense to that notion. Thank you. So you can see it got a little uh, testy today at the Inquiry. Slowly, of course, as I mentioned, resigned as police chief at the height of the demonstrations on February 15th. That was a day after the Emergencies Act was, in fact, invoked. Well, joining me now with more on this, and there's a lot going on behind the scenes with Ottawa police today as well. No one knows that better than Luke Lebrun. He's the editor of Press Progress, and he's been covering the Inquiry. Luke, thank you for your time.
2: Yeah, nice to uh, talk to you, Ben.
0: So tell me about uh, about Peter Slowly's testimony. I mean, two days he's been he was sort of the main, I guess, the most anticipated of the early witnesses uh, on the policing side. Uh, it, it got a little testy in there today. What's what was going on?
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, just uh, I mean, first of all, I mean, Slowly's been testifying for two days. I mean, I guess he wrapped up today, but I mean, he's been but clearly the longest uh, on the standout of anyone who's been. Uh, has been testifying, uh, you know, previous to this, we've heard from uh, mainly from a lot of Ottawa police and uh, provincial OPP officers basically for the last several days. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the last two days, Friday and, um, and, and today, uh, you know, slowly was on the stand. Day one was sort of slowly's opportunity to tell his side of the story you know through his perspective and uh you know in fairness, i do think that uh slowly did uh, say some things that might give the public reason to empathize with some of the challenges he was facing you know he was talking uh, you know he's just talking about how Ottawa Police lacked uh, the number of bodies to respond to something the size of the convoy. Uh, you know they only had a couple hundred officers at any given time and they were dealing with something that had you know several hundred vehicles in the in the streets as well as thousands of people in the in the streets. Um, you know, as well, he shared details about violent assaultive behavior was the word that he used uh, by convoy supporters where they were, you know, actually, you know, just randomly assaulting Ottawa residents in the streets. He talked about how uh, police officers and city workers had been, you know, actually swarmed uh, overnight. Uh, there was another incident that was, you know, very strange where um, they brought in a group of uh, Indigenous elders uh, to try to uh, negotiate with a, a group of um of uh, convoy supporters in a downtown park and uh, basically the, the, you know, Algonquin elders were treated badly and he said they were, they were physically attacked by the the convoy supporters. Um, so, I mean, he, he gave a lot of that kind of testimony on the first day. He also gave some insights into like some of the organizational problems that he, you know, objectively inherited when he came into the job, you know, slowly was right. recruited um, you know, to bring in culture change in the Ottawa police because they were dealing with a lot of you know toxic workplace issues, workplace bullying, sexual harassment, racism, that kind of a thing. And uh, you know, slowly was Ottawa's first black police chief. And yeah, um, he, you know, he yeah, felt came from that- Toronto, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, you know, he felt that he was being actively sabotaged by people within the Ottawa Police Service. So that was kind of the first half of, uh, you know, Slowly's testimony on on, on Friday. It's interesting.
0: Interesting to get that perspective. I mean, clearly, clearly we were watching a dysfunctional police force at work. Uh, It was interesting to find out why that dysfunction may have been. Today, though, he got challenged on his version of events, though.
2: Yeah, that's right. And so, I mean, you know, on day two, he's being cross-examined. So that's the opportunity for some of the other parties that are standing to, you know, poke holes in his, his story. And, you know, certainly there were, you know, at one point, uh, you know, he was uh, he basically threw his number two under the bus and, and accused them of uh, Deputy Chief Ferguson, uh, basically accused her of, uh, you know, making dishonest statements and notes, uh, trying to kind of build up a case that he was the one to be blamed. So there's a lot of finger pointing going back and forth. Uh, there's kind of a bizarre moment where uh, slowly was, you know, asked about statements that he made where he was uh, basically threatening to cut off uh, another, officers, a part of their anatomy, which, uh, you know, is the family right, show, so yeah. I won't get into it. But, you know, that, right. that kind of stuff was we heard uh, today. Um, and then also, too, there was uh, there's a lot of uh, testimony relating to um, a public relations firm called Navigator, as right. well as um, another firm called ASI, which does sort of uh, public opinion research, that kind of stuff. And Ottawa Police, we learned today, actually paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to these PR firms to try to give them... You know, advice on how to, you know, what kind of messages to give the public about what was going on uh, during the convoy. Yeah, during the convoy. Yeah, yeah. Spending this money during the convoy. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, there was one moment actually where. Uh, they were talking about how, according to their research, you know, if the police moved in and cleared the streets, you know, they'd get a 10% uh, boost in support from people downtown. But outside of downtown, they risk getting a 50% hit, uh, you know, which is just a really bizarre kind of way to uh, to run it a is. police force and enforce laws, right?
0: So, so, I mean, what you what sounds like what you're describing, Luke, and this happens to lots of big organizations, that Ottawa police basically turned into this sort of, you know, this, this this wasp's nest of a place uh, yeah. where, you know, public reputation was more important than doing the actual job and everyone was out to stab each other in the back and we saw the results of it when the convoy showed up.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, uh, I mean in the days leading up to Slowly's testimony, I mean, we were hearing from, uh, you know, from other police forces that were talking about how whenever they talked to Ottawa police, it was obvious to them that there was constant infighting. There's this one anecdote that I I personally find quite, uh, you know, quite shocking to hear about. But basically, uh, you know, in downtown Ottawa, there's a really key intersection called, uh, it's basically Rideau and Sussex. And uh, they've mobilized about 400 police officers to, uh, basically they were planning a police operation. They were going to clear the intersection. They had intelligence saying that there was an extremist group from Quebec that had basically marked as their territory and were kind of, you know, treating it like their their turf or whatever, and um, you know, basically Ottawa police were just arguing with one another over who was in charge, nitpicking each other's plans. You know, they're just kind of being you know really uncooperative with one another, and uh, they ended up after mobilizing 400 officers, you know, they just canceled the plan and never actually cleared the intersection. So you know, these were the kinds of problems that were going on behind the scenes that the public didn't hear about, uh, and we're now learning about during the uh, during the inquiry.
0: Luke Brunn is with us this half hour. He's the editor of Press Progress. He's been covering the Emergencies Act Inquiry closely. Uh, Chief Peter Slowly, the former Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly, uh, finished up his testimony today. He'd been on the stand for two days, which is the longest of any witness. He was certainly one of the most important witnesses. We found out a lot about both his take on things as well as what was going on behind the scenes. It wasn't pretty. Uh, as well as uh, uh, Luke was mentioning that Ottawa police were spending a whole bunch of money on market research while this was all happening, which, again, just I was thinking about it over the break, Luke. I mean, it just it it just boggles the mind. I mean, it, it's not so much. It's like someone thought that was a good idea. You know, hey, let's let's see. Let's see what, you know, let's see what they think of us in, you know, in 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 Vanier over this. You know, it's it's uh, anyway, you know,
2: anyway. Yeah. Uh,
0: other witnesses this week is I hear, we're going to hear from convoy organizers this week. Is that right?
2: yeah that's right so tomorrow we're going to hear from uh followed by the name of Chris Barber uh later in the week uh, we'll hear from some of the other characters that uh some people might uh, recognize the names uh you know people like James Bowder uh Tamara leach Daniel Bulford um Pat King who's a uh, quite a you know right. <laughs> quite the character um, yeah. so yeah so it should be uh I mean it, it is kind of interesting some of these some of these people do are pretty well known for being very colorful characters so uh I'm curious to see what happens when you put them up on a uh you know put them in front of a camera and uh let them talk for three or four hours it might be interesting yeah
0: luke have you gotten a sense about how justice rouleau is going to try to make sure this doesn't turn into to a bit of a spectacle
2: that's a really good question i'm not sure um you know most of the most of the uh most of the witnesses so far have been pretty, uh, you know, pretty restrained. I mean, you have police, you have people who are, you know, professional. So it might be interesting to see uh, see what kind of testimony you get from someone like Pat King.
0: Indeed. Uh, you did a story today about Ottawa Police Service launching an investigation. One of the things that came up last week was some of this intelligence that was being used, at least within Ottawa Police, was of pretty dubious origin. At least it didn't rely on particularly reliable sources like, you know, Rex Murphy fine but he's not he's not an intelligence expert by any stretch of the imagination uh what's going on there there's an investigation going on into that you said
2: yeah so last week uh you know i broke a story about uh it was was one of the documents that was sort of uh you know buried in the uh you know hundreds and hundreds of documents have been tabled as evidence during the inquiry but uh so basically this is a january 25th intelligence report uh you know it's about three days before the trucks arrived in ottawa so this intelligence report was supposed to be providing a threat assessment of, you know, what are the convoy uh, participants? I mean, what, what, are, what are their intentions? Are they you know, going to pose a threat to the to the city? You know, what, what are they what do they want? And, um, you know, the report contains a number of strange things, as you just mentioned. You know, it, it, it at one point expresses sympathy for protests against um, COVID-19 public health rules. It mocks local community activists at another point. And then, uh, as you say, you know, they they quote extensively a National Post opinion column by Rex Murphy um, as intelligence on, like, what the motives of the of the convoy supporters are. Um, so anyways, you know, I, I put that out. I, I showed it to some national security experts who have, are familiar with, you know, these kinds of intelligence reports. And they all said this is really unprofessional. They kind of questioned, like, who is this person who, who put it together because it seems pretty biased. You know, it just contains a lot of, you know, unsubstantiated opinions and editorializing and that kind of a thing. And um, so I put that story out last week. And then shortly after, I started getting uh, tips from people who were pointing me to uh, social media posts by the uh, intelligence officer for the Ottawa police, who was, you know, the person in charge of this, uh, you know, gathering this intelligence prior to the the convoy's arrival. And um, there were a number of, you know basically a number of comments posted on LinkedIn uh, specifically where this person LinkedIn. is <laughs> really? yeah, LinkedIn of all. Yeah, that's right. LinkedIn. <laughs> LinkedIn the uh, one place you minds. don't
0: express an opinion generally. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The professional yeah. networking, uh, you know, thing looking for jobs and that sort of stuff. Right. Um, so anyways, on LinkedIn, this, uh, you know, this Ottawa police intelligence officer, um, I mean, it's under their name and we, we asked them and they didn't deny it was them, but you know, under their name, uh, Like these screenshots show this person uh, ranting about how school teachers are Marxist indoctrinating children, uh, ranting about, you know, pronouns and diversity and inclusion policies and, you know, how the federal government is, you know, Promoting diversity and inclusion, that kind of a thing, and uh, so I brought that to the Ottawa Police, and their response to me was that uh, their professional standards unit is now reviewing the postings and taking a closer look at uh, at the officers, so we'll see if that turns into a you know a formal investigation or, or what comes of that.
0: Luke, uh, it was a fascinating article, uh, thank, and uh, thanks so much for your time. I mean, I look forward to see what happens the rest of the week, and I'll be watching when, uh, when the convoy organizers start taking this stand. It should, as you mentioned, there are a lot of colorful characters in there, so we'll, we'll see how uh, Justice Relo manages to keep it all under control. Luke, thank you so much for your time tonight.
2: Yeah, thank you. Have a good night. <laughs>
0: Halloween usually means at least a few tales out there about the dangers of tampered with Halloween candy, or somehow people slipping drugs into kids' bags or razor blades and apples, all that stuff. I mean, those stories have been around since I was trick-or-treating back in the, in the 70s. Well, last week we spoke with Sylvain Chalabras, as I was mentioning, at Dehousie University. He, he found that more than 80% of parents will check their kids' Halloween bags for many reasons. Not just for that, there's allergy issues and you just wanna make sure everything is what it seems and so forth. Uh, But part of it is of course that threat out there. Uh, This year's tales in the States, I don't know if you've been watching this, but rainbow colored fentanyl pills, that was the big one that would pose a threat this year. How they could actually end up being handed out to trick or treaters, we don't know. Uh, That's not at all clear, but that was the scare for this year. Uh, But in fact, like many Halloween candy tampering scares of years gone by, it probably isn't a threat at all. That's because the stories are basically urban legends dug up around Halloween every year. I don't know this to be a fact. I haven't done that research, but Joel Best has. He spent the last 40 years trying to debunk the unfounded fear that bad actors might tamper with children's trick-or-treat hall. And the professor of sociology and criminal justice at the University of Delaware, author of Social Problems and Flavor of the Month, Why Smart People Fall for Fads, joins me now with more thanks for your time on this halloween night
1: no thank you (laughs)
0: one of the many calls you get this time of year i know this has been a busy year why do you think that is i mean you know i've been you know i grew up in the 70s i remember the the scares around sort of you know there are all sorts of strange things in the 70s around this very topic Uh, but why do you think this year has seen a resurgence of it
1: well this year is very different um you know i've been i have been giving interviews like this for a long time like 35 years and i have research that goes back to 1958 and i can't find any evidence that any child has ever been killed or seriously hurt by a contaminated treat picked up in the course of trick-or-treating okay what happened this year was that uh uh it, the issue has been, I, I think, politicized. Uh, uh, and there was a uh, press release from the Drug Enforcement Administration uh, in August. And And this, this was an absolutely ordinary, this was not an alarming press release. This was just the sort of thing that government agencies put out all the time. And it said, you know, fentanyl is being produced in multicolored pills. And we think this may be aiming at... Uh, uh, younger users. Uh, now, what they're talking about, of course, is they're talking, this it's an opioid, right? Uh, we're right. talking about, about uh, young adults, conceivably some really older adolescents uh, who are, are uh, uh, messing around with opioids. Um, but uh, there was an interview uh, uh, where a uh, Rona McDaniel, who's, who's the uh, uh, chairperson of the Republican National Committee, uh was uh, uh she brought this up and she right. connected it to halloween and she said you know parents have to be worried that this rainbow fentanyl is going to be in uh their parents and their children's halloween baskets and this got picked up um uh, you know, uh, mostly Republican politicians uh, have used this. Uh, you know, it's an election year and, and uh, people are kind of ramped up about it. Uh, this does not strike me as a very plausible story. Uh, I don't think drug dealers are in the business of giving away their drugs. Uh, uh, in particular, they're not likely to give them away to elementary school age children who, you know, if they were to get addicted, uh, would uh, not be able to. You know, they don't have any money yeah there's no way that you're going to uh, make a profit from them and um so i i think this is kind of a uh, an alarmist thing but uh people are uh, uh are agitated about this and and there have been a couple of incidents where uh there've been drugs seized uh, in one case they were in uh a big plastic box that you store legos in and, and in the other uh uh, they were actually they actually been bagged as as uh, candy and they were being taken through the uh, screening at at um, uh, the LAX airport and you know that that doesn't mean anything I mean you know uh, when drug dealer drug dealers are constantly trying to to conceal uh, the uh, the goods as they move them around you know and and uh, they you know, we've had decades of stories about drugs hidden in dolls on airplanes and so on. Yeah. You know, so I don't worry about this. And
0: how many drug dealers put up pumpkins for Halloween? I mean, it's it's a part of it. I mean, the part of it sort of defies belief. At the same time, you know, it's I mean, you've been doing this for a long. What do you think it is? First of all, you got interested in it for exactly this reason, right? Because there was this idea that everyone's like, well, of course, this is true. And you're like, well, wait a second, is it? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It, it just seemed
1: to me, I could not, you know, uh, I couldn't imagine why anybody would do this. Uh, you know, what is the point of giving uh, tampered treats to uh, trick-or-treaters? And it just seemed to me like it was really implausible. And so I, uh, uh, and, and people, I would say this to people and they would just get outraged. They would, they would say, of course, everybody knows this is true. And so finally I just decided to look at the press coverage because I thought if this is happening, The press would surely be covering it. And there are there just aren't any stories, Uh, uh, you know, uh, in particular, no stories about anybody being seriously hurt. So, you know, I I think the best way to understand this is it's a contemporary legend. It's one of those things that we tell one another. And, you know, it's not the media's fault. The media doesn't. you know, publicize this. Uh, this is just something that we do to ourselves. We tell one another, "Oh, you got to watch out and be sure and inspect your kid's treats, et cetera, et cetera."
0: One of the things I found really incredible about this particular um, legend is that how in, it's how enduring it is. I mean, it's been around for many, many years, and it just adapts with the times.
1: Oh, but but that's always true. I mean, that's the nature of legends. Uh, you know, there uh, folklorists who study legends uh, talk about variants. And you know we have we have uh, some legends that we tell that are literally centuries old. Uh, so this, you know, we we want to be scared on Halloween. We don't believe in in uh, ghosts and goblins. Uh, we believe in criminals. And so right now we're telling ourselves stories of criminals. And and uh, that's um, you know I think that's perfectly consistent with what Halloween's supposed to be. You know the the thing that strikes me about this is this is the very best thing in the world to be afraid of. Okay. And the reason I say that is that, you know, you are imagining that down the block, there's somebody who's so crazy, they poison little children at random, but they're so tightly wrapped. They only do it one night a year. Okay. (laughs) And so you can, you know, you can manage this. You you can decide how you want to manage it. Uh, You know, I'm sorry, kids, you can't go trick-or-treating. I have to go with you. We're only going to go to the houses of people we know. We're going to go trick-or-treating in the mall. We're going to go trunk-or-treating in the church parking lot. You know, whatever you want to do. You're right. And then on on November 1st, the family gathers around the breakfast table. And you count noses and everybody's still there. And you can say, we don't have to worry about this for another 364 days. OK, what a great thing to be afraid of.
0: Joel, are you surprised you're the only person who's really sort of spent a long time digging into this? And again, to repeat, you've spent years looking for evidence that this is actually happening right. and have never found any.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I I, I spend an afternoon every year doing right. it. Indeed. <laughs> you know, I just go through, through this year's press coverage and I yeah. have a big table and I, I just add this year's data to it. Um, so it's not like I've devoted my whole life to this. (laughs) You wait every year for this day. Yes, I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I've got this penciled in for, you know, maybe Wednesday of this week. I'll sit down and and, uh, check to see what happened. But, um, uh, you know, this, this is, uh, you know, this is a small thing. Okay, I mean, you know, I, I I laughingly tell people I'm the world's leading expert on poison Halloween candy because I'm really the only one because who yes. else is going to bother doing research on this? And and I don't think there's a better way to do research than the way that I've done it. And so I don't think there's somebody out there saying, oh, he really's missed the boat. We need to go at this from an entirely different angle.
0: Yeah, so. no, I agree. There's been no, you know, yes, in, indeed. Do you think this year, because it's been politicized, I mean, so much has been politicized, but do you think that adds – uh, a little more wind in the sails of these of these enduring well, myths
1: i you know periodically i'll get email messages from people that will 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 say well i just don't believe what you're saying you know and that's fine you know nobody has to believe what i'm saying uh this year i've gotten a couple of um but i would you know mm-hmm. people who, who see larger meaning in this you know they they, they see uh uh, the Russians or the Chinese or you know, right, some some larger force behind the fentanyl menace, and and uh, uh, you know it's it's uh, you know I think the you know I don't expect there to be a lot of reports of children receiving fentanyl and and dying of overdoses, and and I think that maybe you know uh, this will just be forgotten. You know I don't I don't expect fentanyl to come back next year. I think that that was kind of a a, a one
0: time one one hit wonder we'll move off of course there is no problem with checking your kids candy right i mean as you pointed out earlier if that's what it takes that's what it takes right whatever you want to do to mitigate these fears then by all means yeah i didn't do it
1: uh yeah. you know i done i done the research and i believe my own research and i thought it would be hypocritical to t- uh, test it but you know there was a there was a study out of i'm gonna i'm gonna mispronounce this Dalhousie. Yeah, Dalhousie. Yep. Yep. Oh, Dalhousie. Uh, yep. Dalhousie University last week that said that 84% of Canadian parents check their kids' candy. Yeah. We interviewed them on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> well, <there's trouble. laughs>
0: we did. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. They check it. I mean, I guess it's, you know, just to see what's in it. My dad used to take the chocolate bars, right? Well, so, right, exactly. it was, yeah. Um, Let's
1: get that dark chocolate out of there. That's not good for you.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's, who put the Toblerone in there? You know, that's the. Uh, um, <laughs> we tell ourselves stories about any of these they sort of it's sort of the human condition to try to be uh a little more a, a little more risk aware than you probably should be
1: that's right that's right yeah, yeah. well and, and that that probably worked well for us evolutionarily. you know evolutionarily you know we yeah. uh, we we kept our eye out for that leopard and, it, and that was the people that didn't keep their eye out for
0: leopards got got eaten this is a bit different though <laughs> this is a bit different <laughs> Well, it's... <laughs> it is uh but again it, 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 but it's been must have been a last a last question for you it must have been rewarding to do this over all these years because it is a fascinating subject
1: i've enjoyed it I've, i i've enjoyed it and and it is um uh you know the the thing is i've i've learned a lot because you know i really thought that when i started if i if i talked about this and kind of visible venues, people would get the idea that this wasn't a real threat. And, you know, I have been everywhere in the media. And, you know, each year I'll think, you know, it'll be October 15th. And I'll think, oh, I don't think we're going to have any calls this year. Maybe it's finally dead. And then the phone rings, you know, and, uh, you know, I get five or six calls. I don't get, you know, th- this year has been bizarre. I'm, I'm over 40 calls at this point.
0: Well, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Keep keep <laughs> trying. Keep trying, Joel. Best. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. So we found out today that and we think we knew this already, the man who uh went into the home of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in San Francisco attacked her husband uh, allegedly with a hammer has now told police she was the target. He wanted to take her hostage. Uh David Depape has been charged with two federal crimes. Um, again, her 82-year-old husband, uh, Nancy Pelosi's, that is, is recovering in hospital. He was attacked with a hammer and seriously injured those charges today. DePape, of course, has a Canadian connection. He was raised in Paul River, B.C., before moving to California some 20 years ago. Uh, he'd been posting memes and conspiracy theories on Facebook about COVID-19 vaccines, the 2020 election the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Uh, But the attack on Pelosi or the attack on her husband and with her as the target does confirm that a lot of this language that's being used specifically around Pelosi herself, but also around others in the Democratic Party specifically dehumanizes people. Um, it opens the door for these sorts of attacks. There are other issues at hand here, no doubt. But the dehumanizing language, um, the demonization of Pelosi herself has caused a real issue. With more on that is Wendy Villa. She's the co-founder and president of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. And she joins me now. Thanks for your
3: time. Thank you for inviting me.
0: We've been learning more about what happened uh, late last week in San Francisco today. There's a charge sheet out. Uh, we've had the weekend to think about it um what's what's what impression has it left on you that this attack on nancy pelosi's husband and also that we now know according to the charge sheet at least that the suspect very much intended to hold nancy pelosi hostage really that's what's coming out
3: i know it's it's quite frightening i think that it's not surprising it, it 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 was not surprising that we had an act of violence and it was not even that surprising that we had an act of violence against you know um a political leader what was surprising to me is that they that this man was willing to attack a family member even after learning that uh, nancy pelosi was not present it's it it speaks to in my mind it speaks to sort of a desperation of the people who are convinced that still the 2020 election was stolen and that the Democrats are doing all they can to destroy the country and the Constitution.
0: It, and again, we talk about this every single time. And I mean, you, you know, we talk about this every time it happens. What is it going to take for for this to stop? I mean, I, I don't want to only want to blame one side, but a lot of this the the anti Nancy Pelosi stuff is clearly one sided. Um, the idea of of fomenting violence against her, we saw it on January sixth, is clearly from one side. What's it going to take for this to stop on both sides? But specifically, when it comes to uh, the far right and their sort of preaching violence in the in the aftermath of the twenty twenty election,
3: I think it's going to take a couple of things. And while certainly there have been uh, violent incidents. From far left, primarily, you know, years past and uh, ecology and that kind of thing. We cannot deny the fact that uh, let's go with ninety nine percent is coming from the far right, and it has moved into a level of extremism that the country did not have six or seven years ago. So, I mean, I think that what is going on is that Trump awakened the feelings, the anger, the fear in our country. And of course, it's not just the United States. It's spread everywhere. And you do see other politicians and other countries' leaders taking up these same issues. Hungary, Poland, um, as you were mentioning, Bolsonaro down in uh, Brazil. It is a global phenomenon. And what I think it takes to stop it, it won't happen, it won't be stopped overnight, and we're not going to fix this situation overnight. But immediately, these politicians, these political leaders, these influencers, can stop stoking the embers of fear. It, it, they must stop it. When you say over and over and over again that a woman like Nancy Pelosi, is, she is hell bent on destroying the country, and if you, if she isn't stopped, then it's going to have impact you specifically, Ben or whoever it is. Mm-hmm. What what do you expect to happen? There's going to be violence. And so immediately, all these people who have said that they wish Paul Pelosi well, they hope he has a speedy recovery, they're so very sorry and shocked and amazed at the f- at fact that this violence has occurred and has no place in our society. Not one of them has denounced the rhetoric that leads to this kind of violence.
0: Given where you sit, what's your what's your sense of where this is going?
3: I have to tell you that right now, I feel like we are sort of, we're just in this terrible waiting room until next Tuesday when the elections in the United States are are held. One thing, I mean, obviously, I fear for the United States. I'm American, and we do a lot of work here, but we do a lot of work transnationally. We've done work in Canada. And what I fear is the effects of the United States on other countries. We've seen it. I mean, there's just no question that the extremism is exported. I do fear for our democracy. Like I I, I don't want to be um hyperbolic about it.
0: Yeah. yeah. But
3: today <laughs> I'm afraid for what's going to happen next Tuesday.
0: Afraid because of how people will react if they lose.
3: There's that. I think we have to watch in the days leading up to the election for violence. Obviously, what happened with Mr. Pelosi, but there's, of course, armed people sitting at at ballot boxes. And I don't know that there's going to be another capital insurrection, but there could be something similar at a a more local level. But more frightening than that, well, I should say equally frightening to that, (laughs) is how our democracy will be fundamentally changed at the state level, which it will take a generation to fix that.
0: You know, for a Canadian... Watching uh, the U.S. and you know, I remember back to Bush and Gore and all the times that things were—you know—it hasn't always been smooth. It seems um, almost—it's—it's hard to imagine. It's hard. Someone had told me 20 years ago there will be a time in the U.S. when a significant number of people will question the outcomes of elections, and I mean all elections, uh, and that many people will believe that they're rigged, that uh, that perhaps one of the world's strongest, oldest democracies will be. Where, you know, the one vote, the one tool you have available to you is your vote. And if you start to denounce that or call that into question, you're essentially burning the whole thing down to some extent. And I think it's just been surprising to watch January 6th, then to watch the kind of the lack of reaction to it um, on on, by many. And then now we're talking about it again. And it's, um,
3: you know, it's hard to imagine what comes next. If it isn't stopped, um, I mentioned that the that politicians should immediately stop this rhetoric. They should denounce the rhetoric itself and refuse to engage in it. That would go a long way. Social media companies could finally step up and do what they have promised to do to protect democracies around the world. I have little hope that that's going to happen, certainly now. One thing I want to say is that a lot of these people, the ones that you see on making videos and on on social media and the ones that show up at the ballot boxes in in their camouflage and carrying guns, and they really believe that they are protecting the United States. They believe that it is being stolen because they have been fed lies. And eventually the left or progressives who do not believe these lies, but they also are going to believe that the elections are stolen. With given all the changes at the uh, state level with the election boards, and it could be set up so that it is unclear if you know how how transparent. Uh, well, that you know unclear how transparent the elections are. But then we in the next in twenty twenty four, some of these states could decide to throw out the vote and put in their own electors. There's a bill in Congress that hasn't passed yet to to prevent that. But this is what we're talking about when we say the fall of democracy and look how quickly it's happened
0: Wendy Via, we'll leave it at that thank you so much for your time tonight thank you next up tonight there was an article today by the well connected and always interesting David Pugliese in post media about the fact that uh, the military is having a real problem with recruitment and retention I don't think that comes as a big surprise listen Lots of organizations across the country are struggling to recruit and retain employees. And of course, the military, unsurprisingly, is not an exception. But it could be worse than we thought. In a new briefing prepared for the Chief of Defense Staff, General Wayne Eyre, and other senior leaders, and again reported by David Pugliese, it shows that the worst case scenario for staffing levels is now the most likely path ahead. So the worst case that they can think of is now the most likely scenario that they can point to. Not only is the military facing its highest attrition rate in 15 years of nearly 10%, up from around 7% last year, recruitment is in trouble. There simply aren't enough people signing up. Um, Now, there are many reasons for that. It's it's a phenomenon just about everywhere. Uh, There's, of course, been some really bad press for the military of late in and around culture, including sexual harassment claims and so forth. And that obviously has hurt recruitment. Uh, rightfully so to some extent. They know this. They're trying to fix it. They believe that, you know, they're in the process of trying to fix it. They also have a plan to try and uh, rebuild and draw more people in, retain more, recruit more, and so forth. Now, apparently that was supposed to take eight years to work its magic, but the briefing warned other senior leaders and Winair Air that it's likely to take another three years beyond that. So not for another 11 years does the military think they're going to be back where they need to be as far as recruiting is concerned and that's and that's a big deal when you think about just how much we rely on the military for so many different things now whether it be responding to emergencies domestically uh such as in Atlantic Canada with Fiona there's talk now of sending potentially sending soldiers to Haiti to try to take care of what is a very dire situation there but are we simply stretched too thin we're training people in in London in in the UK rather for fight to fight in Ukraine we're in we're in the Balkans or the Baltics rather um you know, we have people all over the place. Could, do we have the Do we have the personnel to do it? It appears we're in trouble, and of course, it affects not just quantity but also quality. So, of course, there's a shortage in mental health, military health related jobs. Uh, there's a shortage of health related job or professionals everywhere right now. Aviation technicians, air operations rules, they're in trouble. Army telecom, cyber operations positions, of course, they're in in high demand. So you can imagine. They have many uh, options that aren't necessarily just the military. Uh, how do you fix it? They've been looking at a few things around improved advertising for recruitment. I'm not sure those really work, um, but there are many, many options on the table. Joining me now is Richard Shamuka. He's a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. So uh, we're seeing something, I mean, this is a bit of a, a cry for help, I would expect, but uh, we're seeing some serious issues and I don't think it comes as a big surprise. There are serious issues with recruitment right across the spectrum these days. One can't imagine the military would be any different, but how would you qualify what's going on?
4: There's no other word for this except crisis. Uh, and I think the comments of the chief of defense staff, Wayne Eyre, really kind of emphasize that the Canadian forces have had periods of basically under retention and, and sort of similar lack of, lack of personnel, uh, specifically in the late 1990s this one seems to be far more acute and uh far more uh, problematic for its ability to sort of generate the forces it's required to undertake its both its domestic and international commitments and, and i think everywhere you look uh across the armed forces uh the effects of this manning crisis is is really significant and 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 for the chief of defense to, ask to go and make this comment should be pretty telling to the public of how bad it is
0: yeah. And I guess we're seeing it, seeing it at both ends, right? They're having trouble recruiting and they're having trouble retaining as well.
4: Absolutely. And I think there's there's some linkages on both sides of that problem. Uh, I think that some of the issues that we see with the sexual harassment issues that have kind of emerged, the efforts to sort of reform the Canadian Forces culture have, have sort of really caused issues on both sides, as you say. So so there's that. COVID is also we. It's it's apparent in almost every workplace uh, that we see. You know, we talk about the Great Resignation. And I I see that within the Canadian Forces as well. But underlying that is some some pretty significant problems with with the Canadian Forces again with the cultural stuff, but also with the lack of support and capability that that they've gotten for getting the right equipment that they need to do their jobs and and being deployed to places like eastern europe like uh, when we had an operations uh, when we had major operations in iraq for the navy over deployment for their ships recruitment as well i mean everywhere we look there's there's serious issues
0: so this is something that's a bit of a hangover issue too that the people who are already there and i know i mean i'm in victoria there's a naval base here obviously uh, where yeah i mean people were leaving because they were actually they were already recruitment issues so they were already being overstretched and having to do Longer periods of uh, of duty than they would expect. So I gather this has sort of been a a, uh, a problem of a, of a it's been a snowballing issue now for a while.
4: Yeah, Another term for this is called the death spiral, and it's really problematic for some of the specialist trades. So in the Canadian Armed Forces, you have certain trades and and specialist capabilities where people require additional training, and they're they're kind of niche capabilities for lack of a better. Let's say radar technicians for ships or, or sonar technicians and. What's basically happened because we have under recruitment and you also have over deployment, the same individuals are required to do the jobs over and over and over again. And so they're deployed to extents that just aren't really sustainable uh, for them. Uh, It it really wears in their lives. Their personal lives really take uh, a hard hit because they're away from their families. We have to go on training and do additional work and, and they, they aren't replaced as they aren't available to, to actually train replacements or those replacements aren't coming online because of the lack of recruitment as well. So what happens is, is as those people are deployed more and more, they start leaving and you have fewer and fewer people to replace them and it gets worse and worse for the, for the people that are remaining. And especially for some of the uh, capabilities that are more technology intensive, Aircraft maintainers is, is one of the key areas. say the radar technicians, the communications, and cyber warfare uh, personnel, those ones are seeing some of the worst retention rates because those people have been over overtasked for for basically the past decade, and now they're they're just leaving. Especially again in this kind of COVID and post COVID era, they're like, well, I'm done. I don't have the the morale necessary to kind of continue on working on this, you know, at great expense to my personal well being.
0: They have options too, right? Of course. Oh,
4: absolutely. Uh, And and that's the other side. I mean, historically in the past, excuse me, a lot of the Canadian forces recruitment and retention struggles worked with the economy where you had, you know, the oil patch was booming. And so you had a lot of aircraft technicians kind of leave because they could take those transferable skills. Um, Prior to COVID, uh, the airlines were in a huge uh, hiring um, spree and it took a lot of the pilots out of the system. It seems like the sort of workplace, especially just the public workplaces, there's there's options open everywhere, right? And, and so that's a big pull on the Canadian forces for those specialist capabilities. Because a lot of people have excellent transferable skills that can, you know, help support the economy as it's trying to grow, or there's these positions because a lot of positions aren't being fulfilled by uh, in the workplace uh, in the public workplace.
0: And and then there's the issue of of just compensation within the military itself because that's always that's been a long-standing complaint that in fact they're underpaid or at least underpaid compared to what they could make specifically with the people you've been talking about underpaid compared to what they could make in the private sector
4: it's not as bad as it was in the early 1990s or sort of late 1990s where canadian forces members going to the food bank and in some really horrible circumstances it's gotten better but it's you're right it is still under the average let's say for for the canadian uh, workplace. A lot of the Canadian Forces members have kind of persevered through, saying, "Well, this is for the country." Like a lot of people, members of Canadian Forces realize they're not probably going to make as much as they could in the public in the private sector, but they, they persist because they think this is important. However, the, and that goes back to my previous comments, where you have a situation where they aren't given the correct equipment; they're actually using equipment that is obsolete and has been. That is rusting out, literally for some of the ships. It really dents their their sort of around their their will to sort of stay in and sort of persevere through this situation. And and I would say that some of the decisions by this government, specifically in the past seven years have really emphasized that to them is that they don't feel like they are getting the necessary support. And, and they see the international system and how in, unstable it's been with the Ukraine and mm-hmm. and sort of some of the actions that the China's taken over Hong Kong and Taiwan. I think this is vitally necessary and I need to do this. But if I'm not given the the tools and I'm not being respected for the roles that I'm playing, that's where that disconnect happens. And that's where where it says, well, I don't want to do this anymore because why am I even here trying to do this?
0: We saw we've seen talk from the defense minister about changing the culture, about improving recruitment, but that takes time. And it sounds like they're sounding the alarm again to try to get more advertising budget. But does it actually work?
4: Tough to say. Uh, there's so many factors that are involved at any one time. If we look at the late 1990s, we had a similar sort of situation, although there were the causes for it were significantly different. Part of it was we we're trying to draw down after the end of the Cold War. And at that time, what really sort of put an end to the crisis was actually the war in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. where as a result, you had a lot of people sort of want to come in and serve because they saw this as an important you know, response after 9-11 and whatnot. Getting away from those kind of, you know, black swan events, as they're called, the mm-hmm. ones that we can't really anticipate, uh, there's there's multiple issues at play that sort of are affecting both recruitment and retention. And the biggest issue that Wayne... Uh, the chief defense staff laid, uh, put forward is to say that we, we are overtasked given how many requirements we have, both internationally and domestically. We just cannot sustain this level of troops. And one of the first step was to say, unless it's, unless it's essential, we're not going to do it. So that's, that's a lot of ceremonial duties are being or cut and whatnot. I think it's really curious right now where the government is considering a mission to Haiti basically two weeks after the chief defense says we can't do any more. That's the kind of thing that I think really causes issue or the friction where, where you just, you know, we cannot deploy, we cannot add additional work. When we're talking about the Navy, we only have a certain amount of warships available, right? If we keep overtasking them and we're not judicious with the use of these actually starting to get really worn down warships, we're going to be unable to actually deploy any one in the future. So really husbanding the amount of forces that the Canadian forces puts out uh, on an operational basis on any one days is a pretty key uh, issue that they have to watch for. Cause that, that, that can, that can do a lot for the recruitment that that's, again, the specialist capabilities that those individuals, if they're overtasked, they're not going to be around to train, right? It interrupts training regimes. It interrupts every part of their sort of operation. That's a, that's one of the key parts. And I think, the chief was trying to lay out publicly, like, please do not send that anymore. If you're going to consider, like, increasing the Latvian Brigade or, you know, increasing your training mission to you, beware that that's going to, you're going to pay the price later on. So that's one. Going back to recruitment, working culture, I think part of the issue, and you, you're talking with a lot of people at the forces who are retiring or they're leaving, is that I think some of the cultural programs just aren't hitting the mark. It, it, they're, they're very much... Designed for the public service in general, whereas the Canadian forces is a very unique culture. It has to be because you're sending soldiers, uh, airmen, sailors into harm's way. They have to have a very strong esprit de corps. That's not to say that sexual harassment or other pernicious acts are, are, should be disregarded. No, absolutely not. They need to be fixed. And I think that is also a problem. But. You have to do it in a way to fix those issues, but without alienating people in the forces, because that is happening as well. You you see a lot of exit interviews, a lot of discussion people there. They're they're just, they don't feel that it's really addressing the issue. And it instead is just adding more sort of burden to them and also negative. Uh, negative uh, stimuli to what they're, uh, to their day-to-day operations.
0: It it, it becomes an HR exercise, right? Uh, Absolutely.
4: And that's, and you see that it's just one more thing. I've got to deal with my plate when, you know, the ships or, you know, whatever platform I'm working on is is already dilapidated and I'm sure, and I'm undermanned and and now I've got to fill an HR, as you say, an HR size or stuff. So there has to be more care in how this is implemented because certainly it's rubbed a lot of people who honestly probably are not. You know, there's there there people trying to do their jobs, but it's it's really not. It's not a. It's not actually addressing the problem, but just adding more burden.
0: Yeah, but I guess when we look at what we rely on, and this is part of the problem, is we need to find what we want our military to do. You know, do we send them to? to the Maritimes to help out when there's there's a hurricane? That sounds reasonable. Do we send them to natural disasters? Do we also deploy them overseas? I mean, there's a lot of, we ask a lot of our military these days without necessarily having a clear idea of what it is they're supposed to do or what, what the priority is. But clearly we just need more, they need more people. So what do you think would be, if they had to, the first few things they should possibly do, what could it be? Is it to increase the advertising budget? Is it to reduce, as we saw uh, the chief of defense staff talk about, or at least in general reduce some of that training time, so you think you can get more people fi- into the into their positions faster?
4: I those are possible. I, I think if you look at a lot of the plans that have been outlined, it's all try everything you can at once. Right. Uh, right. I think budget's a big issue. This government has promise that there's going to be a ramp up in defense spending. This goes back to strong, secure, and engage the defense uh, policy white paper that was promulgated in 2017. And this is starting to years where you start to see a significant increase in their budget. Now, at the same time, you see Minister Freeland talk about austerity measures. So, is and every government wants the first place they go in the past 50 years has gone to the defense budget. But it's at a stage right now that uh, there can be no more cuts. Like this this is the organization that's been strapped onto the bone. And and if you cut at this stage, you're going to watch basically a collapse of entire capabilities. And then you see that in some of the Some of the stuff that was released today about about that is that you're at critical manning levels. And beyond that means that you're just not able to do anything, right? Uh, If you're talking about like the Air Force, the Air Force is going to have to go through a transition. Once they sign a contract to acquire the F-35, they're going to go down to basically 37 CF-18s for five years.
0: Richard, thank you so much for your time tonight.
4: Thank you very much.